Welcome to the 443rd episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. Stay tuned for my interview with David Ebenbach, author of the novel How to Mars. Stay tuned for the interview. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is David Ebenbach, author of the novel Miss Portland and the Story Collection Into the Wilderness. Ebenbach's latest novel is How to Mars. David, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks so much for the invite. I'm looking forward to this. Great. If someone hasn't heard yet about your new novel, How to, Mar- How to Mars, how would you describe the novel? I think about it on a couple of levels. On the one level, This is a story of six people who volunteered for this kind of dubious one-way mission to Mars. And I say it's dubious because uh, it's funded by a reality TV show, and it's run by this very eccentric organization called Destination Mars. And they leave them with all sorts of odd instructions. And the biggest one is that they're not allowed to have sex up there on Mars. But of course, they're human beings, so they do. And the book starts with them discovering that one of the Marsonauts is pregnant, which actually has the potential to be pretty dangerous on Mars. But at the same time, they're also finding some signs of maybe not totally friendly Martian life. And their engineer, who has some anger issues, is also starting to lose it. So on one level, it's the story of how they make it through all that. But I think on another level, it's really about all of us. We're thrown onto a planet without a lot of guidance, and we have to figure out how to do this thing, how to live our lives. Sure. Well, do you remember the original idea or impetus that led you to write How to Mars? Yeah. Were you aware of the Mars One project while that was happening? Yeah, I I have followed that. Yeah. For those who are listening who haven't followed that, it's this corporation, this private corporation really started in the Netherlands. And they said they were going to do this very thing. They're going to send, in their case, a few more, a couple dozen, ultimately, folks to Mars. They didn't have any way to bring them back. And they did have a plan to use a reality TV show to fund the project. And they weren't allowed to have sex when they got there. So it seemed like this crazy idea. And yet the reports were that lots of people were applying. It turns out in retrospect, Mars One may have uh, exaggerated their numbers a little bit, but still a lot of people asked to do this, which I, I thought was astonishing. So I wrote this book primarily to figure out like who would even do that and then what would happen once they were actually there. Mars One seems to have shut down at this point. They're pretty quiet, but my Marsonauts are are going strong. <laughs> Great. You've published a, a previous novel, several short story collections. And I'm curious, do you remember the first fiction that you ever wrote? Oh boy. When I was really little, I wrote a satire. We had this giant typewriter in my house, like one of these manual typewriters that you could use to kill a bull elephant with if you had to. (laughs) And I used to type on it just because I loved the physical experience of that. So I remember I did a satire of the TV show MASH. And my sister said that I was way off base because I had never seen MASH and she had a good point. But I did that. And I also wrote Um, What I called at the time a novel, though it's actually eight pages about the Smurfs in this kind of spy story, and actually quite a bit of violence in there. And there's a body count among the Smurfs. I don't think even if there weren't copyright issues, I don't think they would be eager to to publish this. They're among the first ones anyway. 
And so what was your writing journey from those early efforts of using this huge manual typewriter to having your your first fiction published? Gosh, it's been a weird journey in that I kept writing through my childhood, and it was a major part of who I thought of myself as being, even into high school, the literary magazine and all of that stuff. And I applied to colleges that had good writing programs. But when I got to college, I didn't love the classes. Something about the way people were talking about writing felt really pretentious and uncomfortable to me. So I ended up doing what's really on the surface, a pretty stupid thing. I took a psychology class and everybody was nice in there. So I majored in psychology, which kids at home, I don't recommend as a way to choose a major, but uh, (laughs) it did. It worked for me. I, I went on to grad school. I got a PhD in psychology, but I spent all of grad school just cheating on psychology with writing. I would just go off and take writing classes or meet with professors and did a ton of writing on my own. And one of the stories that I produced for a creative writing class when I was in graduate school was my first one that was published. Uh, It's called Fertile Ground. And it was in this very small literary magazine out of Florida called Oasis. It doesn't exist anymore. It had a circulation of 500. But the letter of acceptance that the editor wrote was so detailed and kind that it was this enormous boost for me. It really felt like something was starting. So I kept at it. And then I kept sending stuff out and some good things happened. And over time it accumulated. And I did go to grad school for for fiction writing as well, ultimately, because I seemed to not be able to get enough out of school. And so did you get an MFA? I did, yeah. And where did you go? Vermont College of Fine Arts. It's a low residency program because I was in the middle of my PhD program in Madison. They didn't have an MFA program yet. So I went out to Vermont and they were great. So I'm really glad I did. And what was that experience like for you, your MFA? Oh, it was wonderful. There were a lot of good things that happened in my psych grad program, but there was a lot of feeling like I was in the wrong situation too. And going to grad school in creative writing was an experience of being surrounded by people who couldn't believe that this is what they got to do, that they were supposed to do, that they had class, they had to write. And I felt that way too. It was a major turning point in my life where I finally said, listen, this is what I'm going to do. This is what I'm going to do. So did you end up practicing psychology or are you just strictly writing? Uh, Never. And actually the psychology I studied was social psychology. So really research stuff, studying Mm -hmm. how people behaved in groups. I did teach in psychology for a little bit until I had enough publications in fiction and poetry to be able to switch over to that. And actually, I still teach a little bit of psychology. I have a class this semester on creativity, and we get into quite a bit of psychology for that. Gotcha. So are there writers or books that inspired you on your writing journey over the years? Oh, my God. Do you have an hour and a half or five hours? (laughs) So many. I think maybe they're in a few different categories, so maybe that'll help simplify things a little bit. I really have always loved audacious writers who just seem to do whatever the hell they want and make it work somehow. I really loved Salman Rushdie and Isabella Allende for their magic realism. I really loved Italo Calvino because he's just so incredibly strange. But then I also just technical mastery. So William Faulkner is one of my very favorite authors. Toni Morrison, one of the greatest authors of the English language of all time. And then too, I liked people who talked about ordinary things and made them seem important. So Raymond Carver was very big for me. 
in that way. And Allegra Goodman, I think you could put in that camp as well. Gosh, it just goes on and on. There's so many. Sure, sure. So are you working on another novel now? I am, yeah. It feels very fragile. It was the kind of thing where will this thing stand up and function? But it's, I have a draft, so I'm hopeful. So when you start working on um, a piece of fiction, do you know, because I know that you write short stories, do you know at the outset if it's a novel or if it's a short story? You would think so. I've been doing this long enough, but I often know, and I'm sometimes wrong. For a long time, for example, I tried to write novels. I have seven unpublished novels, and please God, may they never be published. They're, They're quite bad. And one of them really... I got this note from an agent, not my current agent, but somebody who didn't want to represent me, who said, you're really blowing a short story out of proportion you know, <laughs> by trying to make this a novel. It was really a kind thing to say, actually. Um, that did become the basis of my short story collection, Into the Wilderness. So she was quite right about that. And at a certain point, I decided, I don't know how to write novels. I'm just no good at it. So with that in mind, I set out to write a short story called Miss Portland, and it became my first published novel. Who knows? <laughs> I, well, my main commitment is to always follow the thing to how big it wants to be and not to stretch it, not to crunch it, just follow it. And so given your success to date, what writing advice would you offer for those who are writing their own stories and novels? I think the big thing is talent is great, but perseverance and toughness are really important in this field. And in a couple of ways, writing gets really hard. I find that a lot of the time, I'm pretty unsure that the thing I'm working on is any good. And it takes a certain amount of toughness to stick it out all the same and to just see where it'll go. And then the publishing world, oh boy, you will get beat up out there. I had one story that was rejected 61 times, but that 62nd time, it was accepted. It won an award. It became the title story in my first collection, which won two awards. So you have to just ignore all that and keep going. So toughness. Be prepared to take some body blows and to just keep going. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. And, and what does keep you going? I think a lot of people have this feeling, and I, I, I know I do, that I just am not at my best when I'm not writing. My wife will often notice it when I'm grumpy or irritable. And she says, could you just please go write because you're getting on my nerves. And and of course, I'm usually like, oh, that's not the problem. It's this other thing. And I go off and I write and I come back and say, okay, you were right about that again. So for me, I just can't not and be happy. But I also, on the positive end, I love the, the process of discovery. I never write because I know something. I write because I don't know something. And writing helps me to know that thing. So I love slowly getting a little tiny bit wiser over time. Gotcha. So what novels or nonfiction books have you read recently that you enjoyed? I am in this binge right now of utopian novels. So I just am interested, interestingly, was provoked by a TV show. I don't know. Have you seen The Good Place? I have not. I've heard about it. 
gosh, I think it's one of the smartest things that's been on TV in a long time and really funny. And this big question of how we should live our lives and what does it mean to live together and what is an ideal, what is paradise really? And so I, I wandered off into, I read Thomas More's Utopia, Samuel Butler's Erewhon, Charlotte Perkins Gilman. Perkins Gilman's Herland. I just finished that the other day. Elon Mastai, Octavia Butler, all sorts of folks. I just have been fascinated with this notion of what would it mean for society to be a kind of a paradise? And I think it hasn't been in my experience. Our society hasn't been a paradise. So what could we do better? And what conclusions are you reaching from all of this reading? Yeah, that's the tough part isn't it? <laughs> it seems like they have this common thread of people being in cooperation with one another rather than being in competition with one another. And that's partly an artifact of where these came from. Supposedly, utopian literature surged in the late 1800s because there were no checks on capitalism. So the workers were really heavily abused. And we know that whole thing of antitrust laws had to be created and so on. But the, so there's this kind of communitarian ethos and also just a real commitment to the common good. And that's one thing I worry about in our country is that I think we all believe we're committed to a common good, but we have such different ideas of what that is that we fight. And how do you resolve that? I'm very interested in thinking about that. And I don't have great answers yet. Sure. Where can people find you online if they want to learn more about you and your novels and short story collections? The probably the easiest place would be davidebenbach.com. And if you're looking at this podcast, you probably have the spelling in front of you, but it's David D-A-V-I-D and E-B-E-N-B-A-C-H.com. But I'm also pretty active on Twitter under D Ebenbach and on Facebook. And I think that's David.ebenbach and a little bit of Instagram as well. Great. Well, again, we've been again we've been speaking with David Ebenbach, author of the new novel How to Mars. The novel is on sale now, so go buy a copy. And David, thanks for doing this interview. Thanks so much. I've really enjoyed it. Now, stay tuned as David reads a short excerpt from his novel How to Mars. So uh, most of the novel takes place on Mars, but I'm actually going to read the beginning of a chapter that takes place back on Earth, back when there were a lot of candidates for this mission, and they were trying to winnow them down by testing them in a variety of ways. And this chapter is from the point of view of Josh, who goes on to become the mission's psychologist. Chapter's called, We Are All in Tents. First, it's dial turning. They tell me, tell all of us to turn dials. One notch every 45 seconds. Each time, once every 45 seconds, there's this soft thunk in our hands as the dials settle into their new notches. We do this for hours straight. The dials don't control anything or measure anything. They don't make anything light up or start or stop. They just move through notches. This is part of the weeding process, I know. The test is boredom. There's not much going on up there, the people in charge have told us. Or what's going on is a whole lot of maintaining equipment and checking readings and cataloging them and keeping things clean and then doing it all again. They say that they don't mean to be buzzkills, but that we need to know what we're getting into. It's not boisterous up there. 
There have been other kinds of tests, wearing backpacks full of old encyclopedias all day, for example, to see about our endurance levels, timed simultaneous crossword puzzles and Sudoku for a kind of intelligence check, color chip sorting and balloon filling, and even some juggling performance tests for various other purposes, some of which never became clear to any of us. But now it's about boredom. And so the people in charge start this unit with dial turning. After that, they tell us to sit at our metal desks, which are bolted down in rows, and move sand, grain by grain, from one Tupperware container to another. If we accidentally move more than one grain at a time, we have to start over. And then we write the alphabet repeatedly until we've filled a five-section college-ruled spiral notebook. We have to clasp and unclasp, and clasp and unclasp all the clasps on our standard-issue white jumpsuits until our hands feel like lobster claws. At night, we are literally asked to count the stars. The candidates stand in the bare cement courtyard that's at the center of the whole giant complex we're in, and we turn our faces upward, and we count. We are trying to demystify the stars, the people in charge have said, so that you can live productively among them. Some of the candidates are starting to decompensate a bit. Elena has taken up muttering in streams of mysterious Bulgarian. Marcelo has developed a twitchy eyelid. Julia, who looks a little bit like Lil, maybe the curly dark hair that's long enough to get to the middle of her back or her smile, or more likely just me wanting someone to look like Lil, Julia whistles to keep herself cheerful. One person, a man from Bali named Pramana, took himself completely out of the running by sweeping his Tupperware containers to the floor during the sand exercise. We haven't seen him in the Destination Mars complex since. Honestly, though, I don't mind any of it. If you've ever been through a PhD program, you're pretty much habituated to this kind of thing. The workroom could be nicer. The cement floor is painted gray-green, and the walls are just green, a dull shade of it. I once heard that they paint the inside of submarines green so that people forget they're half a mile down or however deep underwater and instead feel like they're in a meadow, which is supposed to keep them calm. And there isn't anything on the walls in here at all, especially not windows. That's like a submarine, too. But you sort of forget about the surroundings after a while. Maybe that's the calming effect of the green, or maybe just another example of habituation. And you get into the work. Like, here I am, bent over a copy of the King James Bible, using two different color highlighters to highlight the words and and but, wherever they appear, one color for and and another color for but. And the main thing it is, is peaceful. And, I highlight. And. But. And. Peaceful for me, anyway. Kirsten at the desk in front of me is drumming her long fingers in her yellow highlighter, is trembling just a little in her other hand, which is maybe or maybe not visible to the several cameras positioned above us. They are filming us for a reality show. Supposedly, audience votes will get, will decide who gets to go to Mars and who won't. We'll see. There are naturally breaks for meals and sleep. The eating breaks are nice, not because the food is good, the food is not good, but because you get to find out more about the other candidates. Like, Marcelo is from Argentina and is a sculptor, or Molly is from Ireland and drives a cab there, or Bruce chews with his mouth open. 
Sometimes we talk about why we're here, why we want to go to Mars. Tom, who has advanced degrees in several different sciences, wants to study the effects of reduced gravity on human physiology. Dalit, who refuses to tell us what he does for a living, says he wants to help spread humanity throughout the galaxy so that it can go on forever. Yaron is a musician. She plays the guzheng, which she says is a kind of zither, which I guess is a kind of instrument, and she wants to compose, quote, truly Martian music. When they asked me about it, when they asked me why I want to go, I told them the answer I tell everyone, my best answer. Why not? I said. And then everybody blinked at me. And I'll stop there. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.